chapter 3. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. This evening, uh, in the message, I want to go back to some verses that we were looking about, looking at two weeks ago concerning examples for Christians. Uh, Paul was a teacher who believed in leading by example. And that was really necessary to his teaching method because they didn't have the availability of Bibles like we have today. Uh, no one could just sit down and read about the life of Christ and see the things that he did. They didn't have any writings to, to go to to look and see how Christians were to live and to act. So Paul was Christ for them. And of course, I don't mean that Paul is the one who saved them. They weren't looking to him for salvation. But he is the one who, who brought them the gospel. He, he was the one who described what salvation in Christ was all about. He spoke of how Christ lived his life. He was the one who talked about the transformation that comes in a person's heart when he receives Christ, that he's born again, he receives a renewed mind. Paul is also the one who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul was their Bible. Without copies of the scriptures that they could go to, without anything to describe what the Christian life was all alike, Paul or like Paul had to actually be their living Bible. And he had to be their example. Even though he wasn't perfect, he had to show them by his example how a person works on his imperfections, and so they could learn to do that just as he did. So I think that we could say that Paul lived his life as an encourager. His testimony was such that he did not cast a stumbling block in the way of other Christians, and a bad testimony, of course, can be a discouragement to other people. Uh, if Paul is to let down and just give in to the world, then that would leave these people in Philippi with no hope. If the one who uh, knew Christ the best and knew the power of Christ didn't have the strength to steadfastly continue in the faith, then how would they ever do it? How would they face the persecutions and life living in a heathen society if Paul wasn't able to overcome that. And then it even goes deeper than that because Paul is not just an example for church members, regular church members, people sitting in the pew, but he's also an example for ministers. And Paul shows us that anyone who aspires to be a minister of Christ is in for greater scrutiny. Uh, God judges the shepherd in greater ways, in more demanding ways, more stringently than he does the sheep. And so Paul, without arrogance, could say, follow me, use me as an example, look at my life, see what I do, and do likewise. So that's really what Paul is saying here in the scriptures that we're going to read tonight. He had already told them that he pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so he lived out that example for other Christians to see how Christian people should live. So these are verses about examples. I'm going to read these once again as we did a couple of weeks ago. If you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Philippians 3, verses 17 through 19. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to gather together around your word tonight. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to understand the text and 
May we say some things here that will help the people here in their lives to know how to follow good examples and to avoid bad examples. Bless in the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The message this evening is part number two of our study of Mark the Messenger. There are two types of messengers that are mentioned in these verses. One is a good example and the other is the bad example. Paul actually gives us more explanation about the bad examples uh, because I think that the people were already aware of the kind of life that Paul lived. They'd observed him. He was a good example to them. And so he didn't spend so much time talking about the things that he did because they were already able to see that. But to catch us up, so to speak, on, on uh, what they knew, we have to look at Paul's teachings elsewhere. We don't see Paul. We haven't seen him face to face. We haven't been able to personally observe his lives, his life. And so we have to just look into the scriptures. We have to see the things that Paul wrote, things that he said, and what others, of course, also may have said about him. Now, two weeks ago, I gave you four characteristics of good examples. And I was mainly referring to leadership and particularly talking about the office of the pastor. But I think that every one of us, uh, all of us should be aware that although you may hold the minister to a higher standard, and certainly the Word of God teaches that you should, yet the very same Word also teaches that this is a standard for you to live to. He doesn't just say, observe the example. He says to follow the example. Paul said, brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which so walk as ye have us for an ensample. Now, let's take a quick look first here at the part of the message that we talked about two weeks ago. Number one, we were speaking about the examples to aspire to. And the examples are not perfect people. Uh, I don't think you have it in your mind now, but maybe somebody does. But leaders make mistakes. If you think that they don't, then you are sadly mistaken because leaders in your church, leaders that have parts in, in different things that we do in ministry, they have feet of clay just like you do. But a minister, one who is in leadership, has to work on his imperfections. And I can't claim imperfection. I can't claim that I do everything right. But we follow examples that are trying to do what's right and trying to rectify all the problems in our uh, lives that are wrong. Now, the important thing in Paul's life is that he was always aspiring to perfection. He didn't claim to be uh, perfect, but instead he just kept pushing forward. He kept going forward all the time to rid sin out of his life. When he was speaking about uh, fighting a warfare against Satan, who's the enemy of our souls, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So Paul is not a man who's inching closer to the world all the time. He's not somebody out there trying to walk the tight wire and, and trying to get as close to sin as he can and yet not fall over. But what Paul is constantly doing, he's constantly pursuing a pure, clean life before the Lord. And so there are certain characteristics that modeled his pursuit. And these are characteristics that we're to look to uh, as followers of him. Now let me very briefly mention these once again to you. The first one is fidelity. Fidelity is faithfulness. Uh, the Marines say, semper fidelis. That means always faithful, always with fidelity. 
So a good example is one who is faithful in his service to Christ. He's there, he comes, he takes his position, he's where he's supposed to be, he always fights no matter what the opposition. And he's also a person who's faithful to the word. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Second word that we looked at, or characteristic quality, was that of piety. Piety is devotion. That means reverence. It means a desire to live a godly life. The minister is one who has to have worshiping God as his top priority. Piety is singleness of focus. Remember Paul saying, he said, this one thing I do. And he said, I've forgotten the past. I'm looking forward, uh, reaching forward to the prize that is before me. So a good example is someone that when you look at them, you don't see a mixture of different opinions. You don't see them going off in all kinds of different directions. You don't see any confusion about what they believe and where they're going, which way to go. They have a consistently focused life on pleasing the Lord. Third thing that we talked about is morality. An example to follow is a person who seeks righteousness, one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And so when this person is tempted, he brushes that aside, he stays the course, he does not let the temptations uh, uh, gather into his mind and stay there and act upon them, but rather this is a holy person. He's permeated through and through with the Holy Spirit of God. In his life, false ways are identified and false ways are turned away from. The fourth thing that we looked at was sacrifice. A good example is a sacrificial person. And here I mean mostly self-sacrificing in the area of pride. He's a humble person. He considers the welfare of others above his own. Uh, And perhaps that's the most difficult thing that we have to master in our lives because we all have this propensity to be selfish. We're always thinking about self. But a person that we follow after is a person who sacrifices self. He's not always looking for his rights. He's willing to give up his rights if necessary in order for the good of others. So... A person who is a sacrificing person is one who esteems others better than himself. And that's modeled after the example that we have of Christ. He was the one who's willing to step down and come to this earth to be a servant of men, to serve us in our greatest need. And, of course, that is the salvation of our souls. So those are just a few of the qualities of a good example. Paul says you find those kind of people, you mark that example, and you follow them. Find leadership find ministers that are striving in their imperfections to become more like Christ. So these, then, are examples to aspire to. But now Paul goes on because he wants to show us a contrast here. Uh, He has more to say about this because there are examples to aspire to, but there are also examples to stay away from. Uh, These are the examples that we avoid. Unfortunately, I think he means here that you might find these kinds of people among those who are uh, confessed to know Christ. You may find these very kinds of people in the church. I'm always amazed by people that just act dumbfounded because someone in the church did not meet all of their expectations. They become disgruntled, they're very discouraged, and they're just all upset because they have discovered that there is a member of Berean Baptist Church who is a sinner. Isn't that odd? And yet, you only need to look as far as the New Testament to find that Paul was very much aware of false professors in the church. 
He talks about this because there are bad examples. And what he's doing here, he's identifying them. He's telling, here's what you need to watch out for. He doesn't say leave the church because of it. He just says, when you see that example, mark that example. Don't follow that one. Now, here's the way he puts it in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, you notice there, it's not a new problem, he says. I've told you often about this. There are troublemakers, there are bad examples, and you'll find them everywhere. You don't leave because of them. Now, for sure, what we have to do, we have to work on correcting those kinds of people when they're in the church. Uh, When we find that someone is doing harm to the body of Christ by the way that they live, if they're bringing a reproach upon God's name and upon God's people, then we're to take those people aside, we are to rebuke them, and we're to try to correct them. But we always do that by following the proper procedures. And then if we find that correction is not possible, that person is to be removed from the body. Now, the discipline side of that whole thing, that's another message. That's not what we're dealing with tonight. What we're looking at here is that we need to know the characteristics of these kind of people, to mark them out, watch them, and stay away from that example. Now, here is something that really makes the Bible such an amazing book. If this was man's book, if we were going to win somebody over to uh, our opinion, if we were going to make up our own religion, then what we would do, we would never deal with bad examples. We would never bring out the dirty laundry and allow everybody to see what goes on. We would not admit to any mistakes. We'd always show the bright side, always be the upsides, never talk about the downsides. We're, we're not going to let anybody observe the faults that we have. But this is not man's book. This is God's book. And so what God does, he doesn't say Christians have no problems. He doesn't say Christians are always exemplary. He doesn't say Christians never let down their guard. Rather than say that there's never a lost person that gets into the church, that there's never a tear among the wheat, God lets us know that there are problem people in churches that you must watch out for. They're bad examples. And the purpose of pointing them out is that God's people can't avoid them. You need to know about it. So Paul then goes on to describe the kinds of things to stay away from. And we notice here his heart as he says this. He says, I've told you about it before. And then he says, I am weeping over this. This was a stressful, gut-wrenching thing to Paul. Now, we have to remember that this information is coming across to these people through a letter. Paul is writing them and telling them about this. And he's weeping as he writes this letter. And I wouldn't be surprised that as Paul is dictating this, that he didn't lean over that manuscript as Epaphroditus is writing this down, and his tears begin to fall on the paper. Epaphroditus perhaps leaves smudges as he tries to wipe those away because Paul was in despair about this. There is a problem here. People who cause problems in the church are enemies of Christ. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's a cause for weeping. Paul had so diligently tried to win people. He'd given his life for them, his livelihood for them. He was in prison because of them. He was trying to turn people away from sin to a life in Jesus Christ. And here there are people in the church that have always bringing up bad things, always dwelling on the bad things, always causing problems in the church. And what do they do? They turn people away from the cause of Christ. So as Paul moves, troublemakers are thwarting his every move. And that's a problem. 
Now, our, our doctrine does not negate the idea that people can actually be hindered from salvation by the action of others. Bad testimonies, bad behavior can cause people to stay away from the gospel of Christ. Well, we need to look here at their characteristics. And the way that Paul puts this, he's not necessarily, again, talking about people that are outside of the church. These are people that are inside the church, and sometimes they even find their way into the leadership. And so he says you have to mark them. They are the wrong kinds of messengers. Now, who are they? Well, first we'll say they are falsifiers. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, an enemy of the cross can be anyone who causes another to stumble. And that stumbling can come in a variety of ways. Now, for these first two that I want to talk about, uh, I just want to sort of take the opposite side of the first two characteristics that we gave of good examples. So if fidelity, if faithfulness is a good example, then falsifying, speaking against the truth, of course, would be a bad example. And over and over again in the Scriptures, we see these kinds of warnings All these warnings about false teachers. There's so many times that this is spoken of in the ministry of Christ and of the apostles that we can't miss this. That there are going to be people in the church that are going to tell lies. They are going to be involved in heresies. They are falsifiers of the gospel of Christ. And we have to be on the lookout. Whenever someone falsifies the gospel, then what Paul is saying, they are an enemy of the cross. They are an enemy of Christ. Because what we're talking about here is the eternal souls of men. And that's an area that you don't want to be guilty of turning people away from the Lord Jesus Christ because you are talking about their eternal soul. Now, Paul's letter to the Galatians was one that deals extremely harshly with those who are enemies of the cross. Whenever anyone adds something to the gospel of Christ or takes something away from it, that person is an enemy. Now, I want to point out a few things to you tonight. Uh, Some people may get angry at the kinds of things that I want to talk about. I hope I don't think anybody here would. But there are some things that Paul says about people who are falsifiers and add or take away from the gospel of Christ. In the Galatian church, there was a particular problem with this. There were people who were perverting the gospel. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what ye have received, let him be accursed. Now, there are two prominent statements that stand out in those verses. The first one is any other gospel, and that means something that's different from the gospel of Christ, different from what the apostles preached. Then the second statement is about judgment. Let him be accursed. What is any other gospel? Well, it can be a gospel that has been added to or a gospel that's been taken away from. Additions to the gospel are when people say things like, you must be baptized in order to be saved. When someone says you must keep sacraments in order to be saved, when you must confess to Mary, you must bow down before the Virgin Mary, I should say confess to a priest, you have to say rosaries. It might even be something like this. You have to evidence your salvation by speaking in tongues. 
It may be that someone tells you there are a list of commandments that you have to keep. Now, adding to the gospel is to say that it takes something besides faith alone in Jesus Christ alone to be justified from your sins. Now, the Roman Catholic, for instance, says, anyone who teaches that you can be justified by faith alone is accursed. Now, that comes right out of their catechism. This is what they say in their catechism. So, God says, though, if the Pope tells you that you can be justified by faith plus sacraments, he's accursed. And that comes right out of the Bible, not out of their catechism. That part comes out of the Holy Scriptures. And it's the very same thing for any religious denomination that adds anything to faith for salvation. That is another gospel. But adding to the gospel is not the only other gospel. Taking away from it is also another gospel. Now, here we hit a little bit closer to home. And when a Baptist says that repentance is not necessary for salvation, then he is preaching another gospel. When Jesus preached repentance and the apostles preached repentance, when John the Baptist preached repentance, why did they do that? Because that is part of the gospel of Christ. Now, when you take repentance out, or when you redefine repentance, then you're preaching another gospel. It's a popular thing to do. And I'm afraid that there are so many of our independent Baptists are preaching another gospel because what they want to do, they want to bring in the converts. They want to say we've converted people to Christ. And they're preaching another gospel because they've defanged the gospel, so to speak. And they've done it by taking real heartfelt Holy Spirit conviction of sin out of their preaching. Now, remember, I I had told you, and I said I would bring this up, and I I don't know how many times I'll talk about this, because it's so upsetting to me, but that tract that I received from the one ministry that we all know about, they offered a plan of salvation without repentance. There was no mention in their tract about contrition over sin. They mentioned forgiveness, but they never make any demand that a person needs to turn from sin. They never say anything about forsaking sin. They never talk about coming to the Lord in such a way that he must become the master and the Lord of your life. Now, we could excuse that somewhat reluctantly if we didn't know that the very same people support a group that have redefined repentance. And what they call repentance now is not turning from sin. It's not giving up all the sins of your life that you commit. Now they redefine repentance simply to mean turning from unbelief. John John the Baptist shot that idea in the head because he said, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. In other words, he's saying that real repentance is to turn from sin, to forsake sin, and therefore have fruits of righteousness that are the result. So whenever you take repentance out of the gospel, you have another gospel. And I can't say anything other than this, that such teaching is an enemy of the cross of Christ. And what it is, it's an easy believism that says that you can go merrily on your way to heaven without really understanding the high cost of following Christ. And the evidence that that is not true is right in the teachings of Jesus himself. He taught the multitudes. He told them what salvation was really all about. And when he was finished, there weren't any more multitudes. Nobody was following him. There were multitudes that wanted to crucify him, not follow him. And what Jesus had done, he had narrowed the way so much and he had made it so hard that he said, there are few that find this way. Now, many of you, I know that you have been used to hearing all of your life, 
hearing preaching about how easy it is to become a Christian. Just a very simple thing to become a Christian. Folks, I believe that it's hard enough that unless you teach people that they must be willing to give up sin, to repent of their sins, to follow Christ without reservation, then you haven't actually taught them the gospel at all. And what they've received is not the gospel. Now, the marvelous thing of what I'm talking about here is I'm not talking about something that you do yourself. Now, they're teaching that it's all up to you. You can make these changes very simply. You just put your mind to it, make up your mind that you're going to do something different, and you can do it. I'm preaching to you that it is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to do this in you. You cannot do it yourself. And when he has worked in you, this is going to be the real result. You will repent of your sin, and you will evidence a life that's changed for Christ. Anything other than that is not the gospel. So what we have today is a cheapened gospel. It's really not the gospel of Christ. So you have to be careful of bad examples. You've got to watch their theology. It's very possible that one of these days when I'm dead and gone, there can be a preacher coming here and he can change your thinking around and he'll start to preach to you a man-made doctrine of salvation rather than a gospel that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. One that He'll preach one that emphasizes the ability of man rather than the sovereignty of God. It's very easy for that to happen in churches. You have to watch out for it. Watch the theology. Now, the first statement then from the Galatian letter was about another gospel. Second part of that was, let him be accursed. An enemy of the cross of Christ is to be accursed. And those aren't my words. Those are Paul's words. Those are God's words. And the meaning is exactly the same as what you find in Philippians 3.19. Whose end is destruction. Accursed means devoted to destruction. Now, lest you think that I've gone off on the deep end tonight, let me just soften the blow a little bit for you. The Holy Spirit is the one who works repentance in the heart of every believer. That's what our statement of faith says. That's what the Bible says. And that's what thousands upon thousands of independent Baptists that use our very same statement of faith believe, or say they believe, you find that in article number 7 of the statement of faith of, re, of grace and regeneration. If you don't have a copy of the statement of faith, go on the website, you can read it there. But many people, I do believe, are saved in some of these other ministries because it's the Holy Spirit's job. He's the one who takes the word and makes it effectual in the heart of the believer. And so what can happen is that the Holy Spirit is capable of taking an incomplete gospel, a gospel that's not spoken exactly correct, and the Holy Spirit can interpret that to the person so that he regenerates the heart and they believe the truth of the gospel. But the important point here is that God is displeased when the gospel is not preached in its entirety. Now, we're running out of time, so we need to move quickly. What do you need to stay away from? Well, number two, the second thing is a prideful person. I think pride can be the opposite of piety. A piety is devotion to God. It's that singular focus that pleases God and what glorifies Him through the proper kind of worship. A pride is the opposite of that because pride is devotion to self. A prideful person is one who wears religion for his own good. That's what he's always looking to. He makes himself feel better because of this religion that he has. And that kind of, 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 of thinking in a religious setting only leads to a superior attitude. It promotes a prideful, superior attitude. Now, I have seen that 
and rules-oriented ministries. And I say that as a person who came out of a ministry like that. When I was younger, uh, I was in a structured, keep-the-rules type of mentality. And what it unintentionally, I think, did was to keep us focused on the outward rather than on the inward. And I do believe that people that make up all those rules, they believe that they are doing some good. But what I've seen it do is ultimately produce some very judgmental people. What it does, it causes you to look down on anyone who doesn't look and act like you. If the person doesn't fit the uh, cookie cutter, then that person can't possibly be godly. And I've seen this go on for years and things like uh, the, this issue about women wearing pants. Now, that's just one of them. And, and without knowing the heart of a person, there are those who would say, I mean, they would automatically assume because a woman wears a pair of pants that she cannot possibly be a godly person. Without knowing anything about their heart, they just can't be godly. And you know why? Because there was a rule against that. And the rule is what defines the spirituality. That's a prideful position. What it does, it keeps you looking down on others while what you do is you focus on your superior spirituality. Now, another way that this is done, and this one came to my attention just recently. That was related to me the other day. It was a statement that kids who don't go to Bible college are unspiritual. Where do you get that in the Scriptures? Where can you find that? And so people who have are in churches where all their kids go to Bible college. They look down on the ones that are in churches where they don't. Well, I would say, look down on me. I'm not a product of a Bible college. I mean, there's nothing wrong with looking at examples. That's what we're talking about right here. That's what the passage is dealing with. So I don't think that anyone would look at my upbringing and think because I went to a university instead of a, of a Christian college or a Bible college that there's something wrong with my education, there's something wrong with my knowledge of the Bible. Now, by the grace of God, I applied myself to the learning of the Scriptures. I was trained in the Lord's church. And so, with God's help, you be my judge of whether what I have is inferior. So, you watch out for people that are prideful rather than pious. And you can always tell who they are because they walk by you. And if you don't look like them, they give you that sidelong glance that you can't possibly be a spiritually spiritual person. You just don't measure up to them. And what they're really doing they're actually living by the lowest of all standards. And you know why I say that? Because they're living according to the very sin that caused Satan to fall. They're prideful people. Now, the third type of person to mark and avoid is those that are materialistic, whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. I want to stick with ministers, for example, so I can cut to the chase rather quickly here. Let me make two observations about this. First of all, a pastor should be treated well and taken care of well financially. And I don't say that for me particularly, but I say that for any pastor who is faithful to the word and serves the church well. In Galatians, Paul speaks about this. He says in the sixth chapter, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. You that are taught in the Word should communicate. That means to share. In other words, you are to support the one who teaches you. If he's ministered to you in spiritual things, then you are to minister to him in material things. It's a very basic principle. It's taught all throughout the Bible. It starts way back with the Levitical priesthood. 
Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And so, if a pastor is well taken care of, that doesn't mean he's materialistic. But sadly, you find in many churches where people are very begrudging of a pastor's salary. And so they become very jealous over that. Well, I've, what I've tried to teach you is that the Word of God says that if you have received a spiritual benefit from the preaching and the teaching, it far outweighs anything material that you have to sacrifice to keep God's man in a place where he doesn't have to spend his time and his brain power thinking about how he's going to support his family. If you've received the spiritual benefit, then you show that by giving the material blessing. The Bible teaches it over and over. Now, having said that then, there's a second observation. And that is that there are some people who get into the ministry because they see a quick buck here. They see a way that they can bilk people and and milk people out of their livelihoods, take away their savings, and how do they do it? Well, many of them do it by promising what the Bible does not promise. Now, let me say this in sort of an unkind way, and then we'll put the blame where the blame is due. The unkind thing that I want to say is that any dim-witted idiot ought to be able to read what Jesus says in the Gospels and find out that he never promised fame and fortune. He never promised an easy life to believers. On the contrary, what made Jesus' teaching so unattractive to the people who weren't led by the Spirit are the things like persecution, things like troubles, things like even poverty can come if you become a Christian. People are going to hate you. We're going to talk about that on Sunday and We talk about the uh, uh, last beatitude, the eighth beatitude. And so people become very materialistic and they enter into the Christian life because someone has promised them, at least they think they're in the Christian life, someone has promised them that there's going to be fame and fortune at the other end. God's just going to take care of all of my material needs. Well, I should say not needs, but wants. He's going to make me rich. He's going to make me prosperous. He's going to return my seed money a hundredfold or thousandfold over. Well, if you think like that, you must be living on Alpha Centauri or something like that because the Bible doesn't talk about that. So who are these dim-witted idiots? Joel Osteen, he's one of them. But then on the other hand, you know, they're not so dumb because they have learned to prey on people with this prosperity gospel and, and so they make themselves rich in the process. So when it comes to worldly wisdom, they've got a lot of that because they know how to get people's money. They don't have any spiritual wisdom. Paul says, mark those kind of people. Stay away from them. I think that John MacArthur said it best in a book title that he has. He, he called it Fool's Gold. My brother Dalton may have preached a sermon on that last week on Fool's Gold. But before I leave this particular point, I want to say that's falsifiers of the gospel. And I don't think that these kinds of people like Osteen and the prosperity preaching types of people. I I don't think you can classify them as those who add to the gospel or take away from the gospel because they don't have any gospel at all. There's no gospel in the middle or in the beginning. There's no gospel in the middle. There's none in the end. It's just fool's gold. They get the gold and their followers are the fools. So let's get to the last one then rather quickly. Fourthly, 
what we are to do is mark those who are sensual. Stay away from those who are sensual, whose God is their belly. Here we're talking about immoral people. There's the kinds of people that want to fill up their sensual desires. Paul faced that in the Roman world at his time. Uh, the cities were filled with all kinds of people that were accustomed to indulging themselves in sexual orgies and drinking and debauchery, just about anything that you could imagine. And they were doing all of this in the name of their false gods. So one thing that Paul had to do was he had to combat the idea that the grace of God would actually lead people into licentiousness. And so he writes on that subject in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, the, the problem here is that does God's grace... Does God's willingness to forgive us of our sins actually lead us into more sin? And that's basically the argument of those who believe in falling from grace. They say, if you can't fall away, if you can't lose your salvation, then what that will do to you is it will cause you to enter into more sin. You'll just keep on sinning because, you know, well, whatever you do, God's going to forgive you. And so it really doesn't matter what you do. Well, what they really don't understand is what the grace of God actually does in the heart of a believer. There's a change that takes place. And the change causes us not to enjoy sin. We, we don't want sin in our lives. There's chastisement that comes through it. It gets us out of fellowship with God. So a Christian who's truly, a person who's truly a believer in Christ does not seek to get into greater sin. He always wants to get away from sin. And so you have to watch out for those kind of people that have that kind of doctrine and that think, one of two ways, either that if you sin, that God's going to forsake his children, or that you can sin and do anything that you want to because he won't forsake his children. Both ideas are wrong. So what I'm saying here is that if you see someone who's sensual, if you see someone who can get into sexual sins and there's no change in their lives, they can sin and go on without remorse, then that means that there actually has not been a change of their heart. So that's a bad example. Don't follow it because it could be very possible that what you have chosen to follow is a person who's actually lost. Now, don't be presumptuous that you would judge your lifestyle by someone who may be lost. Don't look at another person, perhaps it's a member of the church, and say, well, my sin is not as bad as theirs. I'm doing this, but that's not as bad as they're doing. And so you justify your sin through that. The problem with that is that you could be comparing yourself to a lost person. What good would that do you? So here's Paul's encouragement. Find good examples. Pattern your life after good examples. Find a church where the pastor preaches the truth and he lives by the truth without compromise and do likewise. And when you find that kind of church, don't be so quick to leave it because there aren't too many churches like that around anymore. Follow the good examples. Watch out for the bad examples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great blessings that you give us. We just thank you, Lord, for your word and for the encouragements that we have and for the warnings that we have. All of these keep us in the right way following you where our lives will be blessed, where we can be happy as your people. Bless in our invitation tonight. Thank you, Lord, for those who have come to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.